You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. The anacondas, and it is, they're just so fascinating and uh, incredible, incredible thing. What can they teach us? So these pit organs are like behind their noses, but in front of their eyes. But I mean, again, we're talking anacondas, their eyes are up top. So, and basically allows them to see infrared. And what happens is... is Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. I, I'm excited. I'm very excited to, to come back to reptiles. I, I, I think I scared you a little bit in our pre-talk with my, my slides because the anaconda, I don't know why, I just went a little nuts this week in my research. Well, Chris, it actually makes sense. You have the world's longest PowerPoint on anacondas for the world's heaviest snake, <laughs> yes, right? Yeah, it's the biggest snake. Well, yeah, it's not the longest snake in the world, right? We're taking, no. I, I had to look that up because we, we we did do, I mean, I guess I can quiz you on this. The last time we did the massive snake that's kind of in your backyard. Do you remember that one? Of course, I'll never forget. I mean, yeah, we're uh, still dealing with them in my backyard. Florida Everglades is, uh, yes, the Burmese python, but it was many, many moons ago. Yeah, it was a couple years ago, more than a couple years ago. It was episode <laughs> 13. It's just, that's how long ago we talked about a massive snake like this. And I don't quite remember everything we covered with the Burmese python besides they're, they're going nuts in Florida where they don't belong, but... The anacondas in Florida. We got to talk about that. Yes, that I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, blew my mind uh, because we do focus a lot on the Burmese python here in Florida. And that one's much more prevalent. But when we get to uh, range, well, I mean, we, ha- we have to talk about Florida. And okay. that uh, I clicked on the range map of where they're found in Florida. And let's just say I was a little, <laughs> I was a little floored to know that they have been found in Gainesville. No, and that so, far north? Yes. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. Good old not Florida. A, but not a lot of them. So yeah, that's yeah. the thing is, and I, I don't, they don't know if they're breeding or anything like that. That's not as big a problem as the Burmese. And we are far north uh, for being in Florida, mm-hmm. north central Florida. So I don't know if this habitat, it doesn't seem like it's super friendly for them, but I don't know. So 
Lots of surprises today and yeah. a, a very, very big snake, uh, but some really fun facts. The the anaconda's courtship uh, behavior is mm-hmm. quite... Um, <laughs> you sent me that video. I was laughing. There's so yeah, many it, in it. Yeah. Well, and I had to go back to my notes on the Burmese python because I was like, oh, do they, you know, they're both humongous snakes. Do they have these similar courtship behaviors um and or it's or what's called a breeding ball and i'm not a snake expert so if we have any out there listening and and i do get this wrong let me know but i I don't think the uh, burmese or the reticulated pythons do the the breeding ball and so we'll talk a lot about the anacondas and it is they're just so fascinating and uh, incredible incredible snake yeah, yeah. Well, and they are one of the longest snakes in the world, and the Burmese python is right there too. But it's actually the reticulated python. I didn't know. I remember yes. that they're the, the reticulated longest. Mm-hmm, yeah. is is the longer one. Yeah. But it was interesting too, though, with anacondas because there are there are a lot of reports of some really long and mm-hmm. big snakes. But uh, a lot of the experts say, ah, oh, it's hard. It's hard to know uh, if that's accurate or where they're getting their facts from or now, what is the average size? Right, uh, so. right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there. And there's four species. So I had I, no idea. Yeah, I focused a lot on the green because that was the largest, but we will talk a little bit about the other ones too. Absolutely. Yeah. And first, just thank you, Annie, for joining us on Patreon this week. I always Thanks, love seeing you. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have to schedule another live here very soon. Uh, but remember, we're giving back to conservation. Uh, you're giving to us, and we're turning around and, and giving it to these organizations we cover each week. So thank you so much. And if you want to learn more about us, the Patreon, what's going on, if you don't already, please follow us on Instagram, All Creatures Podcast, and then also Facebook. We have our page, our All Creatures Podcast page, but also join our All Creatures Podcast Facebook group. I think Angie and I are going to try to do a live in there too, just to talk to everybody and and give us some species that you want us to cover. So that that's a good way to, to reach out to us. But thank you so much for the emails this week too. We got some good ones. Yes, a lot of fans reaching out to us, which always makes Chris and I our makes our heart smile and gives us even more motivation to just keep bringing you awesome content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now. Describing the anaconda, I guess we started with size. So the stats I saw, average length, 20 feet, weight, uh, 250 kilograms or 550 pounds, roughly. Uh, So the heaviest snake in the world, right? But there are reports, and, and like you said, reports of them being up to 30 feet. I actually saw a review article that quoted another article. I didn't go that far down. I didn't go that far down the rabbit hole that said they can find them up to 30 feet. So that might be pretty rare though, I think. Yeah. I was following a researcher, uh, Dr. Rivas, I think I'm saying that right. Uh, that does a lot of work down in Venezuela and some in Argentina. And he's saying that on average, it's probably somewhere between a hundred and 150 pounds from like that. Uh, he said he'd, he'd, uh, measured or caught and released like over a thousand. Okay. Okay. So, but once again, that doesn't mean that they're not out there. The bigger ones, I think they're just even more rare or, uh, yeah, it's hard to say, but they they can definitely grow massive. And I mean, even if it is just 20 feet, I, that's, that's, a, that's two stories tall. That's, that's a snake. A, it's a massive snake. That's a big snake. But what was, was so striking and fascinating to me, Chris, was 
this uh, sexual dimorphism between Mm -hmm. the male and the females in that the females are much, much bigger than the males. So all those big snakes we just mentioned were definitely females, if they're Mm -hmm. getting that big. Yes, yes. Males are much smaller. And in fact, the difference between males and females is the biggest size difference of a species of a terrestrial vertebrate on Earth. Wow. I mean, yeah, because you're right. So I, I see males reaching an average length of three meters, females twice as big at six meters. Right. So I can't think of a species where the, the, the females are twice as big. Twice as big. Yeah. I know so, we know in sharks. I mean, sharks are big, but that's not twice as big. Mm-mm. Right. When we get to reproduction, I think a lot for me, not that I can necessarily answer the evolutionary mysteries of why things happen and go mm-hmm. one way or the other, but. Uh, well, we talk a lot about the female's reproductive uh, breeding behavior and reproduction and how and how she gives live birth and her babies are big. I can start to understand why the size difference it is why why it is potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is it's I mean, they're a massive snake with massive uh, size difference. So it's so cheers to the female anacondas. Yeah, except in this, well, I don't know if we want to bring it in here. Because I, I don't know if you want to talk about the colors of the snake and stuff, but what is this horny claw? Because the male horny claw is much bigger. Than, it's a remnant toe, right? Or a remnant foot? Yeah, it's, what, yeah. it's yeah, it's the last, uh, the last digit, the remnant. Uh, what I guess you would say, uh, remnant of a digit that they mm-hmm. have left in this um, claw spur. There's different names. Uh, given to this little hook that basically uh, is on their ventral or their belly side towards their latter half towards uh, where uh, their nether regions are. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. So Chris, I have to ask you, do you think the anaconda is a pretty snake or not? No, I think it's beautiful. It's once you get over your primal, you know, what is that? Our lizard brain, like, you know, people have fears of snakes and, when you really start looking at snakes, they are beautiful. The patterns, the colors, they, you know, even coral snakes, which I admire from a, a great, great distance, they're beautiful. I saw one the other day. Yeah, they're, they're oh. small. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're still a little sketchy because you're like, oh, they're, oh. no, they're small and yeah, Rainbow but- almost went up to it. Uh, but I, I noticed it before I, you know, I just kind of got her back up uh, and she came back and then it was trying to actually get up up the lip of a curb into the, in mm. the woods by my neighborhood. And I watched it, made sure it did. Otherwise I was going to help it um, with it, with a, you know, from a distance with a stick or something, yeah, but yeah. they're beautiful. And yeah, I, yeah. I got a couple photos of it. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you just, you got to stay your distance from, from them. And the anaconda is probably a snake that you want to st- stay a distance from, <laughs> yes, yes. but when we get to their habitat of where they live is they're not really living by people, right? Mm-hmm. They're, and they, mm-hmm. and these are snakes that mostly live in water. They're basically semi, um, semi, semi aquatic yep, yep. species of snakes or species of boas. But the anaconda is beautiful. If you haven't seen one, I highly recommend that you either watch a YouTube video. We'll put some on our show notes or Google image them. But in general, the green anaconda, because once again, as Chris mentioned, there's those four species, the green anaconda is typically like olive green in color. And then it has dark um, over its back. It has dark egg shaped splotches um, and then lighter color 
splotches along the sides. Uh, I'm not really saying that right. But yeah, this is a kind of like a circular egg pattern. And it's really, mm-hmm, really mm-hmm. pretty. And their head is big, I, in my opinion. It's it's blunt shaped. And they have these beautiful black stripes on either side of their head. It almost looks like how some of the women are wearing their eyeliner out a little bit longer mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it goes out, it goes like from each eye. And then the anaconda also has uh, nostrils and eyes like really on the top of their head. And this comes in handy when they're in the water and they'll pop just their head up to get air and then also to look around to uh, look for prey. So a pretty good little um, morphology set up there. But Chris, it was also really striking to me is the anacondas, the green anacondas eyes are like olive green or brown. So it blends in with their face. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm used to some other snakes to have more of like a dark brown or black eye color. So it's, it's their eyes actually really pretty well camouflaged into their uh, their skin color, but they're just they're such a big snake. And if you've ever pet a snake, which if you have not pet a snake, uh, and you have the ability to either through your local accredited zoo or nature center, uh, or maybe a friend that's a herpetologist or something, I highly recommend doing it because their snakes are soft. They're not slimy. Uh, they're, they of course have these scales, but the scales run the way that they run are very, very smooth. And this anaconda skin is described as almost extra soft and loose to help it with all the water, uh, absorption that it basic, cause it's, it, it's in and out of water so much. And so they, they don't have like dry, hard skin at all. Um, but yeah, it's always fascinating. I mean, I'll never, you know, the first time I touched the snake, I was like, wow, this is quite awesome yeah so yeah. i wouldn't recommend an anaconda as the one no <laughs> no 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 uh, i i'm a ball python girl so yeah, yeah, at the zoo go. i was um in education education department and we worked mm. with um sand boas i love sand boas corn snakes uh, i've worked with a beautiful rainbow boa but i have to admit the ball pythons that i worked with those are hands down my favorite they're cool cool snakes and great for um educational ambassador type uh animals yeah we need more of that because people like i said we just have this natural fear yes well uh, yeah a quick sidebar one of my one of my buddies uh uh works in kind of like wildlife um containment and relocation and stuff like that and uh he got a call from a really big 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 huge company uh outside of chicago i won't say the name and basically was called because there was a snake in the in in the lawn and which is okay, you know, he can relocate it or, or whatever. Uh, and he calls them and, and it was trying to get more details because it's such a big company. It takes up like a whole city block and there's a lot of lawn and yard. And he's like, well, where was the snake? And they were, and basically the woman on the phone was like, listen, I don't know where the snake is, but this happened a week ago. And my, my workers will not go out there for a week. <laughs> and this is up North in yeah. uh, the Midwest. And my friend reminded her that it's, not a venomous snake that it's probably just a a, a garter snake yeah yeah 90% chance and she said i don't care like all of these workers will not go in the yard period like will not cross this path won't do anything and and it, it just really generated a conversation between my friend and i about how uh this is my friend andy about how how this fear is i mean and these are adult full full grown yeah. 
uh, workers, right. Yeah. That are strong and tough and all this. And yeah, that uh, a snake was seen in the grass a week ago and they won't go out there. <laughs> it does. It just, you just do have this, this, this fear of them. And, and again, every time we cover snakes, we realize they're more scared of us than we are of them. Oh, Chris, big time, like a thousand, I mean, whether they're venomous or constrictors, and we'll talk about how the anaconda is a constrictor today, and I think we're going to dive into that physiology, which is yes, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're definitely not trying to, to come over and, and bite us, and even, no, no. even for a lot of the venomous snakes here in Florida, like you pretty much have to like step on them for them to to do something. Uh, and, and in the meantime, and uh, we're taking away their habitat and we're killing them. And so it's just, uh, uh, it's not, um, it's not a good time to be a snake. That's for sure in America. Yeah. We know or, most... or South America probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. we know, you know, doing the statistics that, you know, I think we did it in the black Mamba episode last year, you know, it, it, it's more people messing with them and that's how they get bit. And then, you know, it, it's not just, uh, a snake's going to come up to you and bite you. So, um, but talking about where the green anaconda lives, massive, massive range. South America, these anaconda range from Colombia, uh, Ecuador, Peru, uh, down through, down to Bolivia, and then obviously large portions of Brazil up to Venezuela, uh, Trinidad on an island there, Paraguay. So, massive, massive range. And Florida. And Florida. That's what I can't get. I, I did not know that, Chris. Yeah. And I was, it was so funny. Like the next day when you sent me that message, you're like, Florida. And I was like, I pulled John. John came yeah. into the room. I said the same thing. I'm like, John, you're never going to believe what's in Florida. I mean, of course, Florida, <laughs> yeah. we have like every invasive species yeah. known to mankind. So it was actually yeah. my bad for not assuming that. Uh, but then, yeah, when I clicked on the uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife website, because they're like, click here to see them. They range from Gainesville to Miami, the Everglades. <laughs> and there hasn't been a ton, there hasn't been a tons of sightings or captures, but enough, uh, yeah. enough of them. Chris. Okay. So I, I clicked on the map and I was in South Gainesville or Southern. And then, I, and then I'm like kind of starting to zoom in and it's in this area called Micanopy, which is a, a little yeah. town South of Gainesville. Yeah, yeah. And where they were found, there was two sightings. I don't think they were captured. Two sightings literally in the swamp uh, be south of where Romeo lives, like in his backyard. We don't so we don't go in the backyard because it is um, it is it's like a nature preserve now. Mm-hmm. So I don't ride back there when I ride. But yes, like next door to him. However, this was in 2017, so I'm like, here we are covering uh, the Burmese python mm-hmm. in 2017 when I when there's like anacondas in uh, the backyard of the farm where I ride. So that's crazy. That's Small crazy. World. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but- it's <laughs> anacondas and Burmese pythons in Florida in the wild. Oh, our poor wildlife. Nuts. Holy I know. Our, our, I was just thinking about little wildlife, my little say. beagle. You know, rest her little soul. Like when she was out sniffing around in our backyard, I'm like, oh, what if I would have, oh, I couldn't even think of imagine seeing a, a, a well, big old anaconda. Yeah. I mean, Rainbow, lo- my dog loves a horse farm and she runs, I mean, she sticks by me, so she doesn't go yeah. down to the swamp uh, yeah. uh, unless it's super hot. So I was yeah. thinking, I probably don't want her to go down to the, to the no. I mean, there's gators too. So yeah, I know. Yeah. You gotta really watch uh, them. So yeah, really keep her, uh, keep her in a stall or something. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Florida is even this far north. Mm-hmm. It is a swamp. So we live with lots of creatures and I love them all. 
and I respect them all and I stay a safe distance away from them all. There you go. There you go. It's going to be interesting to see what happens between anacondas and Burmese pythons. All right. But going back to where they do belong in South America, I mean, this is a major, major predator. That, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Apex. I mean, I mean, yeah. Up there. Up there with the jaguars, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, yeah, you can't. I mean, we'll talk about their food. And of course, depending on their size, they do eat smaller, medium prey. But they, I I read somewhere, called them like um, a bull snake because they can take down young bulls. Uh, So, yeah, they are really an important part of the ecosystem for basically taking a lot of rodents out of the population and other small mammals, reptiles, even snakes. So... Uh, to, when you have an animal that massive that's consuming decent-sized prey items, they just have a really important ecosystem role. And snakes in general are a, a bioindicator of the ecosystem's health, right? If it's not a healthy ecosystem, snakes cannot be there, right? And then we talk about how the anaconda, uh, green anaconda, especially all of them, how they are this semi-aquatic animal and they I mean they, they spend most of their time in these shallow slow moving freshwater habitats. They can be found in savannas and grasslands and rainforests, but they prefer this shallow fresh water. So if but if that's not healthy, right? Like if the waterways are polluted or not there with global climate change, that's your snakes can't be there. And so therefore they're gonna be an indicator of a healthy ecosystem. Yeah, that's very true. It's very true. They're very, very critical, very critical. And, you know, when we talk snakes, a lot of times what we talk about is like the the statistics on, you know, them attacking people, because again, we do have such a fear for them. And I just want to put this myth to rest. There are no known accounts of anacondas attacking people. The only snake that there's ever been reports and this, they date back quite a while. I've been, I was looking at all the snake reports, like back to the, the 1500s, 1600s, is the reticulated python in Asia. There are reports that they, they do attack people uh, very rarely, but they, they can, and usually small or children or something like that, uh, because they, again, they can get up to 30 feet. Like that's, they're a very massive snake in, in Asia, but not anacondas. There are no reports known. Um, and, and the, the interesting thing I, I found with reticulate pythons, because I know, uh, I think that's what my friend had way back in the day in college, is now they're, they're such dangerous pets to keep that the U.S. has stopped imports of them and interstate transport of reticulated pythons. So they are aggressive and you have to be very careful around them, but not anacondas. So instead of going down that rabbit hole, I wanted to tell kind of a good story story about South America, because it seems like every time I go to South America, a lot of what I focus on is the deforestation of the Amazon. And we just covered that a few weeks ago with the bush dog episode. And so I wanted to tell here's some good news. Here's some good stuff. And Angie's you've, you've spoken to a couple of researchers down there, you know, that are doing really good things. Oh yes, Chris. Those were, I mean, those interviews were amazing and I'm just obviously a huge fan of South America since I've been lucky enough to travel there. Uh, but yeah, I spoke with uh, Pedro Fruets uh, talking about the uh, endangered population of La Gil bottlenose dolphins on the southeastern coast of Brazil. And then I also got to talk with uh, Kenny 
Rosler. And that was a fascinating yeah. interview all about the hooded grebe. Yeah. And it's a bird uh, very endangered in um, Patagonia area, which also is so beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and so, yeah, those were amazing interviews. And I just I just love that part of the world. And there is some good conservation going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why I, you want to tell these good good stories. And that was uh, Kenny was episode two thirty seven, and Pedro was two thirty four. Uh, we did it last year uh, during July twenty eleven, and there is a lot of good going on down there. So you mean I think you mean twenty twenty one? Yeah, my bad. Twenty twenty one. Sorry, <laughs> the years go by. So I, I I found this very interesting, and it's not going to be too long, but it's talking about rewilding Argentina, and they have. Uh, 2030 biodiversity targets. And basically what rewilding Argentina is doing is they're turning private land into national parks and they're reintroducing species there and re you know, restoring the ecosystems, blah, blah, blah. And so I found this article and, and them talking about the work that they're doing. And I was just like, wow, okay, I need to learn more. And just to give you synopsis, and this is going on all over the world, but to find this in Argentina, and, and I know, I think it was Pedro's interview, who's talking a little bit about some of that stuff that they were working on, is, you know, Argentina does recognize that there is a biodiversity crisis going on. So people are working very hard to protect their wildlife and their, their natural landscape. So this started in 1998. So this has been going on for over 20 years. And they're trying to restore and revive uh, their landscape. And so it's a nonprofit. It's a Fundacion Rewilding Argentina. And it's it spun out from a U.S. nonprofit, which I want to look more into, but the Tompkins Conservation Organization that is working on rewilding. And I know we talked about uh, Rewild, who... Um, you know, Barney Long and, and all of those great scientists are working on around the, the, the world. So they have three steps into this rewilding project. And they really, like, we, we always go back to the wolves in Yellowstone. But that showed us so much of what happens when you introduce apex predators, when you start taking care of the, the environment and rehabilitating it. Beavers in England are now being reintroduced. Uh, bison and, and muskox to Russia. Uh, Tasmanian devils are, are being reintroduced to the mainland in Australia because they were driven to extinction by humans. So this is going on all over the world. There's a lot of projects going on. So this is going on in South America. So their step one is to get land. So they've been busy purchasing land or getting land donated to them in Argentina. And what they're doing is making these now national parks or protected areas. So they've gotten a few, I think they've gotten over like five, 600,000 uh, hectares already uh, to be doing this. And they're, they're rolling this into the National Parks Administration of Argentina. So that's step one. They get the land, then they go in and start restoring the habitat. So they do it multi-pronged, but they're they're going in and rehabilitating wetlands or forests or the steppes on Patagonia, and they're reintroducing, you know, giant anteaters, peccaries, uh, different types of rodents, uh, the visachas, which we've got to cover at some point, and the macaws, birds they're reintroducing, and jaguars. That's a big one that they're reintroducing jaguars uh, back into the habitat. 
So once they get this habitat up and running and protected, their third step is to attract tourists for ecotourism. And that is what's going to help sustain and maintain these lands. So like just the Capuchins last week, we're talking about getting to Costa Rica. Man, we've, we've got to travel to South America and Central America. I'm like promoting all tourism there. But there's so many beautiful places around there that we need to go see. So now this dates back to 2015, but right now they're generating an annual revenue of like seven to $8 million in these wildlife areas. Uh, in the Brazilian uh, Pantanal, and that's actually three times the revenue obtained from cattle ranching, which we know in, in that part of the world is is what's causing a lot of the deforestation and loss of habitat. So it's actually nice, yeah, better to bring in ecotourism um, and protect the environment there. So, anyways, it's a it's a great story what they're doing. Again, this is. This is Fundacion rewilding Argentina. I got to get down to that part of the world. You were so lucky to go visit South America back in the day. Yeah, I spent a lot of time there. I'm, I'm itching to get back, uh, but it's just beautiful. I mean, and it's such a it's such a huge, vast area of land, and all the different countries and the different cultures and the different landscapes. I mean, of course. Amazon was breathtaking and uh, it was in uh, northern Brazil, southern Venezuela area. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I did not see any anacondas. Um, we were going to take a riverboat down the Amazon, but it was actually, it was like a three week trek to go from um, Manaus, uh, uh, Brazil, where we were at west tour into peru and uh one of the buddies we were traveling with uh matt on the move from australia he did it he went and then we just said well no i think we're gonna head head more uh towards argentina and head south and so i did not do an amazon tour uh i did do the uh, i did a boat ride and saw the meeting yeah, of the waters yeah, yeah, uh, the yeah. merging of the waters that's where the the different sediments go from like brown to black and there's like a beautiful clear line and i did see a pink dolphin jump a river amazon river dolphin so i need to get back see some anacondas and of course some of the other amazing creatures we've covered recently oh, there's so many America. there's so many it's such a beautiful part of the world i definitely would get down there and it, it reminded me because i remember you talking about that story i think it was back in suzanne smith when you interviewed her one of your first interviews mm -hmm. uh about the uh river dolphin and all the great work she's doing down there yes she's still taking educational conservation yeah. tours down yeah there, yeah yeah, so. yeah that'd be awesome that'd be yeah. amazing well i think it's a good place for a quick break so we'll be right back all right, welcome back. So, not a ton on evolution, Angie. I, you know, with snakes, the uh, you know the anaconda, the it's a reptile. You know, the order is Squamata. I mean, I love it that they're called squamates. <laughs> That's always my favorite. Seventy four hundred species of lizards and snakes and amphibians, worm lizards. So we'll have to cover one of them one day. I just slaughtered that, but. I'll move on. The suborder is the serp serpentines, and then the family is boadae, the boas. So you have 12 uh, genera with 49 species. It's funny, the boas, most are in the Americas, most of the species, but then they do find them throughout the world, even those ones in Madagascar, which might be worth uh, a peek at here in the future. Because there's actually four Madagascan boas, 
And then you have about 15 old world Sam Boas and their allies, which is like Europe, Asia, uh, you know, some in America. They're, it's just they're, they're everywhere. Canada, East Africa. Then the bevel nosed Boas, you have five species. And these are found in like Asia and some of the islands. And then the true Boas, 32 species within Central and South America and the West Indies. Now, the, the genus of the green anaconda or the anacondas is the Eunectes. And the four species, so we have the greens, that's the big one, and a very, very large range. Then you have the Bolivian anaconda in South America. Then you have the dark spotted, and that one's in, so they're, it's funny, these other anacondas, their ranges are much smaller. Sure. Mm-hmm, the dark spotted. Yeah, yeah. So the dark spotted is just in northeastern Brazil and French Guinea. Mm-hmm. And then you have the yellow anaconda, which has a little bit larger range, but this one is eastern Bolivia, southern Brazil, Paraguay, and northeastern Argentina. So the green anaconda by far has the largest uh, range of any of the four species in that genre. And then the green anaconda's um, scientific name is Eunectes marinus. So there you go. So that's their their phylog- phylogeny. Now, snake evolution, I mean, we go back to reptiles. They, they emerged out from lizards 175 million years ago. That's our best estimate. Um, research, again, has said that snakes evolved from lizards, not the other way around. So they lost their ability to walk uh, because they found a, an advantage of burrowing or slithering on the ground. And we still have that vestibule little cloaca hook in the cloaca, anacondas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cloaca, cloaca hook. So, um, but really snakes did not really go crazy and di- diversify until uh, the last mass extinction when dinosaurs went extinct. After that, after all the species that survived, snakes started to feel, fill the niches over the millions of years uh, that some dinosaurs probably did at some point. Um, now my favorite story about <laughs> these big snakes, and I think I talked about it in the Burmese Python. Oh, Titanoboa. Here we go, folks. I, I love know. this story. Oh, it's, it's the, the best. best. It's the best. It is the best. So the largest snake ever was Titanoboa. Some people might be aware of it. It lived around 60 to 58 million years ago. So this, after the dinosaurs went extinct, again, this is a few million years later, this snake evolved this massive one this is the one we the largest snake we have in the fossil record weighed up to a ton about 45 feet long pretty much looked like an anaconda just massive in south america the northern part of south america and when i tell the story and i I tell this to angie because i'm such a dork is titanoboa was discovered back in i think 2012 and a, a, a professor, because I was a professor at the University of Florida at the time. So one of my fellow professors, and I, and I, I didn't know him. So, uh, you know, Dr. Jonathan Block at the University of Florida was down in Columbia uh, looking for the large turtle fossils because they were, he was studying turtles. And so the, these mines down there in Columbia, he was able to go in after they, they did some clearing and dig up some bones. And he would preserve the bones, the fossils, and then ship them back to campus back in Florida. And so 
I was in the museum because of the, the Natural History Museum there at Florida. Angie and I talk about it every so often. I was in there with my young son watching this whole documentary about how they discovered Titanoboa. And in the documentary, it's this grad student and he, he was unlocking all these bones, but he pulled out this vertebrate and he's like, this is not a turtle. And he just, he was like, no, no, no. And somebody came by and said, oh, that's a snake. And he was like, no. It's too big. And the more he looked at it, the more he realized, oh my goodness, this is a snake vertebrate. And that's how they discovered Titanoboa. So I'm watching this documentary that was on the Nature Channel or or, um, National Geographic, I think it was. And I look left and this exhibit just opened that day. And I was like one of the first people in there. And there's the grad student talking to somebody that he was showing around. I look right and he's on the TV and I look left and he was standing right next to me. And I was like, Rourke, Rourke, look, look, look. And we were laughing. And um, yeah, that's how they found Titanoboa and massive snake. I mean, massive snake. Now, what's interesting about Titanoboa though, they have found more fossils is based on their teeth. And the way they hunted, they, they first thought, oh, it must be eating these massive caimans or these whatever massive animals there were. But they actually found that they, they actually believe today that with finding more fossils, that they're actually piscivores, that they were mainly fish. Ah, I mean, that yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I love that story. It was like I Titanoboa. geeked out. I know. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. I'm like, we've interviewed celebrities before on this podcast. I was more starstruck looking at this grad student who discovered Titanoboa than some of, I mean, I love the people we have on this to interview and, and I love talking to them and hearing their stories, but I was more like starstruck. This, yeah. Well, this, it's full this, circle, right? Yeah. Yeah. This PhD student who's now hopefully off discovering great things around the planet. And um, so I always tell that story, but yeah, Titanoboa, amazing, very much like an anaconda. Get some more facts. Uh, anacondas in the wild, Angie, for such a large animal, live about 10 years on average. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's rough uh, out there. Yeah. Yeah. 10 years. That's it for such yeah. a massive animal. Yeah. Under human care, I read 28, even 30. Yeah. Potentially. Okay. Yeah. 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 Don't have to, don't have to hunt and, and get injured and all those things. Some things I found interesting, on land, they can slither up to five miles per hour or eight kilometers per hour. So we can definitely can outrun them. We know they're not going to hunt us, but we definitely can outrun them. But you're not going to outswim them. Nope. <laughs> I don't know if you got that stat, but upwards of 10 miles per hour or 16 kilometers per hour. Yeah, they glide through that water. They're, I mean, they're, yeah. they're nicknamed, one, of, one of their many nicknames is the water boa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 massive and big, good swimmers. I mean, we swim under four miles per hour. You know, like sure. our top athletes can swim five miles per hour, but not much. Well, and also the anaconda can remain submerged underwater, holding its breath for up to ten minutes at a time. So that's definitely oh, wow. more yeah. than your average human, uh, for sure. They can really hold their breath as they need to, and yeah. It's, it's, well, why don't we going to do that again? We did that with the bush dogs. <laughs> yeah, the did you leave that in there? That's so <laughs> yes. funny. Ah, I timed it perfectly. That our breaks like right there. We hold our breaths. I it, love it that. worked out really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So what? Uh, so much to talk about that, but all right, what we do know about the the green anacondas or anacondas in general, their their vision is is not great, right? They don't they have an underdeveloped vision. 
They don't see great. But they I mean we we they have the Jacobson's organ. We've talked about that in many of our snake episodes. That's their forked tongue, pulls it in. The fork left or right will tell them where the senses are, you know, blah, blah, blah. We've described that before. One thing we didn't describe about is the pit organs. Yes, uh, that has been overlooked and uh, needs some some attention for us to, to dork out on. You, I'm surprised you didn't, but I did. I was all <laughs> repro this week. Okay, 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 okay. All right, I'll get through ball. this. Wait till we get there. It's incredible. All right. All right, I'll, I'll I'll get through this so we get, we can uh, we get to that stuff because that, that that's fascinating. So I did find a study. This was published in Nature, and it was Janet Fang. <laughs> this is funny. I didn't even realize that her name's Janet Fang, and she's talking about the pit. Pretty perfect. Pit mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. She's amazing. Uh, the, the The paper is Snake Infrared Detection Unraveled, and it's talking about these pit organs. And to break this down. So these pit organs are like behind their noses, but in front of their eyes. But I mean, again, we're talking anacondas, their eyes are up top. So, you know, above their mouths and basically allows them to see infrared. And what happens is it is there's nerves in the pit organs that are triggered by heat rather than light. So they know in rattlesnakes, the pit organ is triggered about 28 degrees Celsius. It's around 83 degrees Fahrenheit. And what happens is the heat radiation off a warm-blooded animal will heat up the pit membrane tissue, which opens up these protein ion channels when that, that like, you know, in the 28 degrees Celsius, because we always talk, you know, uh, metric in science terms. So when it, an animal body walks by, like we're 98 degrees 0.6. With, if we're within one meter of the snake, it triggers these pit organs, they open up, these ions flow to the nerve cells and triggers an electric signal, which allows the snake to see in infrared. That's magic. So I love that. I'm like, biology, how, how, like we always, yeah, yeah, we always ask I know what I'm reading tonight. Send me that paper. (laughs) It's it's really, yeah, there's a lot of different proteins and it gets into that. But the funny thing is, is they're like, this is like all we know at this point. There's Ah. still so much more to know. All you budding uh, scientists out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the pit organs... So that not only do they have the Jacobson's organ, which is flickering, which is chemical, right? That's this chemical sensor, sensory. They have these pit organs. So they know within a meter, which is about three feet of an animal, that there's there's heat radiation and they can sense that. And, and then their eyesight probably lasts second uh, with that. Now, the other rabbit hole I went down was like, okay, because I'm thinking of anacondas and I'm thinking physiology how do these things hunt? They're very, very successful predators. And I was looking at like the muscle, like, you know, because they're so thick. Right. They're thick, very muscle, thick. Right. Mm-hmm. So I did find a paper called Studies in the Innervation of Skeletal Muscle of Certain Muscles of the Boa Constrictor by Marion Hines from John Hopkins University, published in 1932. <laughs> so, All right. I, I, didn't get to read that one, so I didn't find out. So if you're asking yourself about their muscles and how strong they are, I I, I do have a little bit of, of answers for you. 
What I found is what's interesting about the green anacondas or the anacondas in general is their teeth are backwards. So when they bite, it's kind of like if a fish hook, you know, they get hooked and stuck. Mm -hmm. So it's tough for prey to break free. And then they constrict, they'll rapidly constrict the animal. I couldn't find what muscles do all this in the coordination. But what I did find is they had an estimated bite force of 900 PSI. It is the strongest... That's this. I mean, it's hard for me to relate PSIs, but from this, doing this podcast, I know that's yes. a pretty high number. It's yeah. Uh, the hyena is like eleven hundred. The anaconda has the strongest bite force in any snake in the world that we know of now. Like the rattlesnake's like one hundred and fifty psi. The mm-hmm. bite force of the anaconda is nine hundred psi. So very very strong bite. Locks on constricts with a force of only about 90 PSI, but they get so wrapped up and strong that people said it's like putting a school bus on your chest. And the anacondas have uh, such short vertebrae, vertebrae that are short and it's very flexible. So it's, it's able to coil very, very easily. So that is how they, 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 their physiology allows them to detect bite with such a big force, wrap and crush. Now, their bones in their mouth, and you've mentioned this in another snake episode, I think, they're not fused, the upper and lower jaw. It's held together by muscle. So there's massive muscles there. That's why they have such a, such a strong bite force. But they're able to swallow such large prey and it's the skin around the mouth is so thick it can stretch. Well, and they also, yeah. And they also lack like a sternum or anything. If you, I mean, I guess to compare it to like us humans of like, Mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that they can be that stretchy skin and then not having basically a sternum or a breastbone or something in front hindering them that they can just open up. Yeah. Yeah. Swallow like a massive, Cayman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. deer. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, talking about what they what they hunt, I mean, they're very opportunistic, but, you know, you know, peccaries, which aren't small, you know, or capybara, they're not that tiny, you know, thinking about putting them all in your mouth at once. I mean, they, they have a very, very diet, but they eat some big, big animals. Like you said, bulls? Yeah. Like what? Well... I, and then you just, I mean, besides the, the largeness of the prey that they're eating, I i went down a little bit of the rabbit hole of the actual physiology of the constriction part mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because there's, there's some ideas or maybe misconceptions out there with the constriction of like, oh, well, they squeeze so hard that it breaks their bones and kills the prey. But as you mentioned, the PSI of the actual constriction phase uh, the twisting, squeezing phase is is not, you know, uh, relatively speaking, not that hard. Yeah. I mean, yeah, hard yeah. enough. One of the things that they do when they constrict is they actually wait till the um, the prey exhales, mm. and then then they that's when they then they squeeze down harder. Then, uh, so another misconception about uh, snake constriction is that they're basically suffocating their prey because they're like squeezing their lungs or you know squeezing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh if you, i guess if we think about like squeezing our necks uh but that was the long held um belief that it was a suffocation type of event especially if you're squeezing down every time they exhale 
But there was a study not too long ago in the Journal of Experimental Biology that basically showed through really cool simulations and just just scientists being scientists uh, that it turns out that it's it's basically the circul- circulatory system that gets overwhelmed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so the blood is it's not necessarily I mean like it is somewhat to do with oxygen but basically the blood cannot get into the brain. So the animal does die very quickly um due to ischemia. And so in non-medical terms basically ischemia is blood flow is reduced or restricted and therefore oxygen is is not available to the brain and uh yeah you, you go unconscious and really quickly and and then die. So I guess the good news is that the, the prey is probably not suffering that much because it happens nah, within quickly. seconds. Yeah. And then to add a little bit of a twist, pardon the pun, <laughs> uh, to the uh, with anacondas is they often um, strike in the water. And so uh, the prey may also drown too at the same time. So what comes first, the chicken or the egg, the ishima or the drowning uh, – they think they think it's probably the um, the the circulatory the the schema schema. I'm probably saying that wrong, <laughs> but so I thought that was super fascinating and science uh, letting always myth busting. And so, Chris, another question I had about constriction, right? So it is it's a lot to exert that type of energy for the anaconda itself, right? To wrap around the prey, squeeze down all those PSIs. Every time they exhale, keep squeezing. How long do they stay constricted and how do they basically know when their prey is dead and then they can consume it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I found this really cool study that uh, basically demonstrated uh, in a very scientific way that snakes that are constrictors know when to stop the constricting or squeezing process because they can actually sense the heartbeat of their prey. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so when their prey, when the heart, when the heartbeat stops, these studies were showing that, yeah, a few seconds later or so the snake would un uncurl and release and begin the process of eating, eating the prey. And so, I just, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's, they're like geniuses, so right? Yeah, like they're, yeah. you know, they're like, we don't want to actually yeah. like waste any more energy squeezing this thing to death. It's yeah. already dead. Now yeah. it's go time. So just incredible. Oh, it is. It is. And they do swallow it head first. And the, the one little factoid I found like, wow, is, and I think you're talking about this is they partake in cannibalism. So the females eating the larger or the, the females eating the males. So is that like black widow situation? Or? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's not super uh, frequent. Uh, yeah. It's not all the time. Uh, and then we do have to also remember too, that the females are almost twice as big as the males. And so then if you're thinking, so then if you think of maybe like a younger male, that's maybe trying to breed a super large female. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it, it can. It is, it is, it has been noted before, not super frequently, 
But uh, yes, the female okay. has been known to dine on her romantic <laughs> pers- her, her romantic uh, pursuer pursuer. Yes, <laughs> uh, so the actually that's what that was one of my surprises for you, Chris. Darn it! Yeah. Uh, we get to reproduction, but we'll we'll talk okay, we'll okay. talk about okay. that okay. Uh, too right, because right. yeah, she's just uh, I, I have newfound respect for female anacondas. Let me just say that much. So, <laughs> all right, but there's all a right, reason right. why she's not just. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a reason why from her uh, metabolic. Uh, livelihood yeah okay well and yeah they they can go several months uh, without eating you know after they get a large prey item uh that, that can last them quite a long time they have a really low metabolic rate and it you know they can they can go long periods of time without food so you know if if, if they do go through a period of, of not being able to find anything the only other thing that eats anacondas, I mean, the, the smaller ones can get picked off by almost Yeah, the anything. babies for sure, yeah. easily picked off. Yeah. yeah. Large the jaguars, ones. yeah, jaguars will go after them. Caimans may go after them. Mm-hmm. And then other anacondas. But all right, so that's physiology. What do we know behavior-wise? And then we get into repro. Yeah, Chris, uh, behavior-wise, looking at the green anaconda, they're going to be active uh, usually in the early evening. And they can move a long way over a short period of time when they're in the water, right? Uh, but then even in the dry season, a male, if he's really motivated seeking out a female, he can cover some ground. But in general, they're going to spend most of their time swimming or hanging out in like murky, uh, freshwater, slow-moving streams or bodies of water. Uh, but of course, because they are reptiles, um, as ectotherms, they do need to, to sun themselves to warm up. And so a lot of times though, they will uh, climb a tree and sun themselves over a branch. And then if they if there is a predator or they all of a sudden they get hot or see some prey, they can easily drop into the water. And uh, they do hunt both in water and on land. Uh, and they're hunting in the water. Some of the videos I was watching from National Geographic are so impressive where, you know, they can really uh, be very stealthy underwater. They're good swimmers. And then they just pop up their eyes uh, to see a little bit and then their nose to smell. And the rest of their body is hidden under that water, maybe similar to like a, a crocodile or alligator. And they just, and they can hold their breath for a long period of time. And then the anti Conda is, is known as basically an ambush predator. Uh, they're opportunistic, uh, ambush, and so they just they'll, they're very very stealthy uh, when they utilize a lot of their their um, their their hunting techniques. And what's interesting is if they are living in more of a savanna area uh, versus like a river dwelling like wetland type area. Uh, they will grow larger where there's more uh, prey availability and they can hunt easier. So typically in the, in the river water dwelling snakes. So, I mean, and that's the other thing too, I probably didn't mention it and why I care about anacondas is just their ability to adapt and be really, really flexible, especially the green anaconda because with their, with their big home range and, and they've, they've figured out how to like, even though we probably evolved to be more of a water boa, hey, we can we can hang out in the savanna too and do what we need to do. We just won't get as big or we won't eat as often. So just uh, really just an, an incredible, um, amazing, flexible 
a snake. And then not only that, but then there is some seasonality depending on where they live and whether it's the dry season or the, uh, the flood season. And so if they are in a really, you know, water type area doing great, awesome. But if they find themselves in a, in a dry region uh, where there's not a lot of water, uh, green anacondas can actually undergo like a, a state of dormancy for that dry period where they just won't eat and they'll hang out. And I don't, I don't think it's technically like a true uh, hibernation or toper or anything like that, but it's the ability to just shut some stuff down and not eat. And, and maybe that's why they don't, and maybe that's why the green anacondas that live in more of the savanna or dry regions don't get as big. But yeah, I mean, they, uh, they're just, they're really, they're survivors. It's just, it's, inc- it's crazy. And Chris, you already talked about how green anacondas are able to detect prey by using vibrations. Uh, but then they also use a lot of chemical clues too. So pheromones uh, by that uh, forked tongue with the Jacobson organs. And then, of course, too, uh, researchers think that the pheromones have uh, a, a pretty big role to play uh, for males and females getting together to during the breeding season. And and yes, their eyesight's not that great, uh, but they can definitely perceive uh, visual stimulation, right, movement, and then, of course, audio stimulation. So, yeah, just overall a really, really keen uh, a keen animal that uh, has just been killing it for a, a millennia, right? I mean, for a long, 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 long time, and uh, we're we're here wa- watching this um, this this ep- epic evolution that has stuck around basically until us humans got into the picture. So uh, we ne- we need to make sure that they have a safe place to live and that they can keep on just keep on keeping on because the anaconda is just it's just a rad snake, except in Florida. <laughs> Except for poor, our poor, our poor native wildlife is just. I know, I know. Uh, I know. Yeah, uh, I think we should take a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right, we're back. All right, so you've been alluding to this repro, the radical repro of the anaconda, and you sent me that video, which was pretty amazing. You know, National Geographic of this breeding ball. So, what is it? How do they breed? How many babies are they producing there in Florida behind your in your backyards? <laughs> Hopefully not, but you know, in their native range, how how many are they producing, and uh, how often? I guess is yes, Chris. These are great questions, uh, and we're, I'm going to get to the breeding ball. But before I do, just some quick facts: is that uh, green anacond- anacondas are polyandrous, uh, which means a female will mate with multiple males, uh, hence the breeding ball, uh, at the same time, <laughs> and uh, but. The typical breeding season is going to be between like March and April, where the males are really going to be tracking down using those chemical pheromones to find the female green anaconda. Anaconda, and at this point, researchers their theory is that the females just kind of lay low and wait for the males to come to her yard, basically, and the males will come in from the north, south, east, and west, and they will be using their forked tongues and their Jacobson organs to just to smell whatever chemical she's putting out. Right now the breeding ball. So as the female lies there in wait, just kind of twiddling her, I don't know what, I, what would a snake twiddle? Uh, 
I guess. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not much. Yeah, not much. Why she's yeah. just hanging out, right? Flicking your tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so fascinating what happens is their males come in aggregations. And so depending on uh, where the female's living and how many males are within her territory or within, not her territory, but within the region. I don't know if there's a study knowing how far a male will travel, but they find her and studies have shown that up to 13 green male acondas will come in and aggregate with the female and breed the female or try to breed the female at the same time. And this mating can last for several weeks where the female is just hanging out and multiple males will be courting her and surrounding her in what is known as the breeding ball. And when I say breeding ball, whatever visual visualization you're having right now is accurate. It's this giant female anaconda snake, of course, right? And a mass of male anacondas that are smaller than her, so we'll give them that. Uh, but they're 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 just writhing and twisting around her all at the same time, competing to gain access um, to breed her, to deposit their sperm in her cloaca. And uh, there's researchers are have suggested that they that um, the uh, the mating spur uh, that you had mentioned earlier, uh, which is like a the small leftover limb vestige or remnant uh, that they might even like the ones that tickle her the right way might might entice her more and then they're the ones that are able to deposit the, um, their uh, sperm in her cloaca others have said that like sometimes they will deposit or deposit near her cloaca and other ones will like knock it off knock that uh, the ball of sperm off and try to deposit their semen in her or sorry sperm in her uh so it's just, it's a real breeding ball and uh, it's just this huge cluster now. And they just wrap around her and <laughs> yeah, for weeks, for weeks, but it's slow motion. So it is, they're moving slowly and uh, it's almost like a wrestling match, I suppose, this aggregation, uh, but they're all, uh, they're, they're all being mostly gentlemen. Uh, they're, I don't think there's any like, you know, huge there's not any huge brawls why they're in this breeding ball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just, uh, it, until me, she wants a snack. Well, <laughs> bingo, <laughs> bango, my friend. Uh, no, she's very patient. She, oh, she lets this whole process happen. Uh, and, and is, is a good sport. And then it's all of a sudden like her giant size compared to the males. I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. Like, okay. Like if you're going to have like, 13 males wrestling their bodies over your body, (laughs) (laughs) then it's probably good if you're pretty giant and can just hang out and just twiddle your, I don't know what snakes twiddle, but at any rate you get the picture. So I, it made sense why the female was, is so big to me now. And uh, yeah, the, uh, we'll put some of the national geographic footage on our, um, on our show notes, but it's really an impressive, impressive scene. And, and anacondas, green anacondas are not the only snake species that does this breeding ball uh, courtship behavior the last up, up to weeks. Uh, but in this, for me, it was my first time. So <laughs> for all, so for all of our, all of our herp, uh, friends out there. Uh, how did you not tell me about this? <laughs> how am I just now learning about this? Cause it's just so fascinating. It's just, inc- I mean, it's just the nature is just 
amazing. But what can happen, as you hinted to earlier, is after uh, the female Greena anaconda uh, is done with her breeding ball, um, sometimes, not all the times, uh, the female may eat one or more of her breeding ball (laughs) partners. One or more. (laughs) But Chris, so I've... Typically, if a breeding ball is successful, she uh, uh, she has you know she has become pregnant, and therefore she will not eat for the next seven months. So, dad of the year, it gives his life. It's one yes. of the dads. I mean, and he, but <laughs> he doesn't go. even know if it's his offspring, right? Like, no, I no. Uh, and the males are that much smaller, and so I mean, it's kind of opportunistic, and I mean, I guess her. Yeah, behaviorally, physiologically, she knows that she's not going to eat for the next seven months. And I mean, man, I, I mean, yeah. trust me, I, I've been pregnant and I, I, I put down a whole carton of ice cream. Like, <laughs> You're not going to eat John, though. <laughs> no, but he, you know, he, and now if he was smaller than me, I mean, and, and I'm just Amazon, saying, just yeah. saying, if I wasn't going to eat for seven, seven months, come on all now. Right, all right, all right, and, right. and, you know, these snakes have been doing this breeding ball stuff for like two to four weeks. They should have hurried it up and moved on because to speak for what the males do after that, the ones that do survive the breeding ball, which is most of them, if not all of them, uh, they will just go on and find another female if it's still within the breeding season. So they're asking for it. I mean, come on. <laughs> They're asking for it. Jeez. 13, 14 males. Okay, okay, okay. All right. So, so okay. Now what happens? Okay. Now After what she's happens? She's done eating. Yes. Yeah, so she's done. Snack, yeah. <laughs> she snacked. She's uh, been impregnated. Uh, her gestation or incubation, because remember, she is a reptile, so I probably should be mm-hmm. using the word incubation, mm-hmm. is for seven months. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, f- anac- uh, female anacondas are oviviparous. And so what that means is the embryos are developing inside their eggs. Like that's normal. We see that with chicken eggs or whatever, uh, sea turtle eggs. But they're doing this inside the mother's body until they're ready to hatch. And when they are ready to hatch, they actually hatch in what's known as like a live birth. So to the untrained eye, it looks like she, oh, you know, she's having this total, I mean, she's having live births. I shouldn't say untrained eye. These two foot long baby snakes are, you know, just are coming out of the cloaca, uh, which is pretty rad. I, I watched a cool, uh, I shouldn't say rad, which is really incredible. I watched amazing footage from uh, National Geographic, I think, or BBC again, of um, two of them. Cause of course, you know, I just can't get enough uh, snake reproduction, but uh one of a green anaconda giving birth on land and then one of a green anaconda giving birth um, in water. Mm-hmm. And her offspring, she can give birth to up to 80 at once. But oh, wow. yeah, but the typical range is 28 to 40 uh, baby snakes born. And I think one of the videos I watched was actually only 13. So a little bit smaller. Uh, so yeah, I mean, they're two feet, uh, 200 grams. They're pretty large, and to watch them just swim and slither away, I mean, they're already, in my opinion, they're already like a good-sized snake, like right when they come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, some of the eggs that didn't develop or any 
any uh, any baby snakes that are born as stillborns or not alive, um, she will consume those. Uh, <laughs> it's just, she's, she's insane. I love the green anaconda. She's like, she is. She's just eating everything she's a baller. Yeah, she's a baller. Uh, but, but, she, but she hasn't eaten. So her last meal was probably oh, one of her boyfriends. And then, I mean, it, it, it makes sense that her first meal would be one of her children, I guess. Uh <laughs> Run away! Run I away. know. <laughs> I, well, and, well, you make up. A, you make a very good point here. So, all of the snake offspring, all the babies, they do. They literally just slither off. There's no parental investment. Um, mom, mom's hanging out. <laughs> mom's gonna eat you. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't slither, if you, if she thinks you are dead, uh, she will probably consume you. So, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Bless her heart. Uh, but I mean, that's a big, I mean, that's a big parental investment, seven months. And then because of that, I mean, then not eating, right? So she doesn't eat for seven months her. And then, I mean, her, her, she's obviously lost a lot of her body mass. She has these babies. Um, it takes her a long time to recoup her energy reserves. And so green anacondas, the females typically only breed every other year. To help mm-hmm. make up for this loss of energy, energy right, right. required um, from reproduction, uh, and having and being, I mean, be, imagine being at the center of that breeding ball. Like, come on, that's you know, that's that's exhausting. So, <laughs> I can only deal with one or two guys. I mean, not fourteen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's bad enough when you've got like two or three of them texting you. Can you? I mean, yeah, yeah, forget (laughs) about it. Forget about it. So, um, but now with we when we talk about generation interval and like survival, Mm -hmm. when the green anaconda offspring slither off uh, to get away from mom, but but yeah, they are about two feet long or so, but they. I mean, they do have a lot of predators in, right? Like they're instantly right. on their own. They know how to hunt and stuff like that. But that those are the ones that are going to be picked off more uh, by some of the predators uh, that we mentioned earlier, jaguars, um, hawks, things like that. Yeah. So yeah. alligators, caiman, or sorry, yeah. caimans, things like that. So yep, yep. Uh, it's a tough life. Uh, and But what's f- crazy fascinating is uh, within – uh, within for basically from birth to adulthood. So I couldn't find if they, I mean, how many years it takes them to grow um, into their full adulthood size. I think it depends on the nutritional status. But anyways, just going from birth to adulthood, they have like a 500 fold increase in biomass. So those little ones n- need to hunt and eat and, and move yeah. along and, and, and grow quickly in order to survive. And yeah, so it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, 10 years i mean that's not they don't live that long out in the well wild. and then think about it right so if a female is to be 10 years old she probably doesn't read you know, a couple years till sexual maturity once mm-hmm. again without depending on her nutritional status and her size and how she grows and then she only uh, has um a clutch of offspring every other year so every year, maybe yeah. five maybe four in her lifetime yeah. maybe three depending yeah. so now fun fact is in 2014 Female anaconda, green anaconda. Mm-hmm. She didn't need no partner. She didn't need no oh, man. Oh, mm-hmm. was she one of the ones that? That's we yes. talked about this in some episode, and we were like, "Yeah, that was." A, did she store sperm for a long time? They've discovered some reptiles can do that. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, she uh, she gave birth uh, what through what's called facultative parthenogenesis. 
Mm-hmm. And um, at, this is at West Midland Safari Park on August 12, mm-hmm. 2014. Uh, she was being kept with another female anaconda and basically gave birth to three live uh, little ones. That's crazy. Yeah, that's so, crazy. Life will find a way. We yeah. watched the movie on that yeah. <laughs> back in the nineties. <laughs> Big dinosaurs. Life will find a way. So super impressive, and still so much, still so much to learn about green anacondas, mm-hmm. anacondas mm-hmm. in general. Um, and uh, not as uh, not as much research as I would have liked to have seen. That I see, you know, like other species that we've covered recently. So all you snake fans out there, all my herp buddies, uh, yes. Uh, Plenty to research. Yeah, yeah. And then just conservation, I mean, least concern, but we know habitat loss in South America is, is a big issue. And, you know, if we lose the Amazon, that would that would undoubtedly uh, devastate green anacondas, um, you know, if it turned into one big savanna. Organization out there saving snakes. Well, Chris, this week, uh, instead of focusing on anacondas, I'm actually focusing on the rainforest. And and the indigenous people that live there. So the group I want to highlight is called Rainforest Foundation, and they can be found at www.rainforestfoundation.org. And they have been protecting the rainforest in partnership with indigenous people. So that's what I really want to highlight too. Um, since 1989. And the Rainforest Foundation focuses on the rights uh, of indigenous leaders to help secure their rights at local, national, and international levels to help foster networks and, and alliances and help strengthen their voice. The Rainforest Foundation also focuses, of course, on the land. So they partnership with indigenous communities to obtain legal rights uh, to customary lands to protect them from deforestation uh, through all sorts of training, negotiations, uh, legal stuff, advocacy. So really working to protect the trees and the Amazon. And then lastly, the Rainforest Foundation works through leadership. So they work with the indigenous peoples to help organize and build institutions and relationships with the government and all the policy that goes along with it to protect the indigenous people and their rights and the lands uh, around them. So just an, an amazing, incredible group. You can find them on social media and give them a follow. Their website is very well done. And they also have an amazing list of 10 things that you and I can do sitting right here uh, in our homes, on our bums. Uh, I'm in, obviously in the U.S. and you are in New Zealand. So some of the things we can do to save the rainforest are eliminate deforestation from your diet. So we talked, uh, I know Chris, I think a few weeks ago talked about um, the beef industry uh, in in Brazil, which is taking down rainforest. So uh, it's great if you can go vegetarian, but at at the very least, uh, make sure you're buying your beef locally. Uh, If you're like me in the United States or Chris in New Zealand, uh, you'll really be helping the rainforest out. Uh, Buy responsibly secured products, choose products that give back. Support indigenous communities, reduce your carbon footprint, email your preferred news outlet, inform yourself and others, have these conversations at, uh, at the holidays or whenever, and get political. Uh, that's always a good one. And uh, you can volunteer your time. 
So that can make a huge difference. Uh, and if you go to their website at uh, rainforestfoundation.org, they have lots of different ways that you can help volunteer your time. And a lot of it's like translating, editing, video production. I, you, you don't necessarily have to go down to Brazil, right? Uh, or the Amazon or wherever. So there's a lot that you can do. Uh, and you can also, lastly, you could even host a fundraiser. And they give you tips on how to do that. And they help walk you through it, whether it's your birthday party or a 5K or a poetry slam or an art show or benefit concerts. Uh, the things we like to do, and we're starting to get get back to doing a little bit more as we move through the third year of this pandemic. If you're doing some of that stuff or bake sale, what a 5K, why not do it for the rainforest? There's just an endless way that you can make a difference for uh for the forest and the animals that inhabit it. And uh, the Rainforest Foundation gives you a great outlet to do that. So hats off. Yeah, we do. And that's a good list. That's a good list. That's good conservation tips of the week. I mean, it needs us. It needs us. It needs us. I mean, obviously, we will we will always come back to South America and Central America and, and keep our eyes on what's going on there. Snakes, Angie, we haven't done tons of reptiles. That's why we, we keep throwing them in here. But we do go back to episode 13, the Burmese Python. That's when we were starting to hit our groove in the podcast, I think. You know, once we hit uh, Honey I Badger don't, I don't know. 10. I don't know if you could pay me enough money to listen to some of our <laughs> older ones. <laughs> Maybe that could be our fundraiser, right? Yeah. yeah, I know, I know. Uh, episode 41 we did on rattlesnakes. Then we went to episode 159, the that King Cobra. That was fun. I remember some of the rattlesnake behavior, the parenting mm-hmm. behavior. Mm-hmm. They don't eat their babies, right? They do not. Mm-mm. No. They protect, they stay with their babies. <laughs> yeah, there's really it's cool like research the out of New Mexico. Super dad cassowary and then uh, super mom not anaconda. Um, <laughs> She's pretty good. The uh, episode 175, sea snakes. And then episode 223, black mamba. That was a really good one. And then episode 281 was the paradise tree snake, the ones that fly. Oh, the flying. So, yeah. That, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're interested in snakes or you want to learn more about snakes, check on, up those episodes uh, available on all your podcasting apps. I noticed since we did move over to Megaphone, if you were on Podbean, it wasn't updating. I had to resubscribe to our podcast on Podbean because that's who used to host us. So if you need to do that, that will help and you can... Uh, start catching us on Podbean. I use pod I think I'm using podcast attic is the one that I is the one that I use and, it, and it, it's really great and it, our pictures up the whole time while you're listening and whatever. But uh thank you so much for listening. Keep those emails coming. They make our days, our weeks. We try to get back to all of you uh that do email us. So thank you for that and uh take care and and we'll be back next week. And Chris, I've been waiting all episode my anaconda <laughs> don't want none unless you got buns, hun. She's <laughs> right. been seeing that all week. All week. My husband's been seeing it. I've been on good behavior. If you made it this long, thank you. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.